0: Hey everybody, welcome to ARE Live. I'm Mark Tier, the founder of Black Spectacles, and today we're going to talk about the ARE 5.0 case studies. Um, after this episode, you're going to have a good game plan for how to complete the case study, um, regardless of uh, which exam you're taking. Um, and Mike has some really helpful tips that are going to help you navigate all the information that you're given, because you're usually given a lot for these case studies. Um, so, you're gonna walk away with a bunch of stuff. Uh, before we get started, uh, if you'd like to attend our next ARE live broadcast, where Mike is going to do his now famous um, top 10 tips to pass the n- new exam, ARE 5.0, um, you can visit blackspectacles.com podcast to register. And in fact, if you're sitting in front of a computer right now, just type in blackspectacles.com podcast. And there's a link right at the top, you can register right now, so you don't miss it. And you know, if you do miss it, as long as you're registered, we'll send you a, uh, uh, a recording anyway, so you can register just to, just to be sure. And you know, like all of these ARE lives, during the broadcast, you'll have a chance to ask questions to Mike and share with the group. Um, as you guys probably know, uh, here at Black Spectacles, we have uh, video lectures, practice exams, and flashcards all on the web uh, for ARE 4 and ARE 5.0. Um, and we've spoken about this a couple of times. We also have our new group coaching program. Um, and actually, we're speaking to you today on May 8th. Applications are now open for our July uh, J- uh, July cohort. Um, so if you're interested in participating in one of our group coaching, or I'm sorry, in our group coaching program, you can go to blackspectacles.com slash group coaching. Um, what's nice about it is it, sort of the goal of the coaching program is it gives you some structure and support um, to get through the exams, we bring a recently licensed architect who will be your coach. And then we really do, a, I think, a really kind of thorough job of handpicking um, the coaching candidates um, because we're looking for people who are really de- dedicated to finishing the exams and taking them seriously. In fact, what you end up doing is you and your group commit to taking all of the ARE5 exams on a schedule of basically one exam every month or one exam every other month. Um, so it's a pretty serious group. Um, and we do have limited spots available, so you can apply now. Again, if you go to blackspectacles.com slash groupcoaching, applications close on May 18th. So we're 10 days away from that uh, closing up. Another announcement, which we're super excited about, if you haven't already heard, uh, Black Spectacles is the first ever uh, NCARB-approved test prep provider, uh, which is, you know, uh, I don't know, it's, it's pretty awesome. We've been really excited about it over here. Um, last month, NCARB approved all of our ARE 5.0 PPD and PDD study materials. Those are the two big exams.
1: Um, And if you're in the transition.
0: Yeah, exactly. If you're in ARE 5, I'm sorry, if you're in the uh, five exam plan transition where you're taking some in four, um, the last two uh, that you take that are part of ARE 5.0, PD and PDD, those are the two exams that were approved. And that included, you know, they reviewed our lectures, our practice exams, our flashcards, the whole bit. Um, So uh, we've submitted the other ones uh, for review just the last week or so. So, um, so we're really excited about uh, getting everything approved for you guys. Um, lastly, I f- often like to remind folks, if you'd like your boss to pay for your Black Spectacles membership, yeah. be sure to tell them about our firm licenses for any size firm. It doesn't matter if you work at a 10 person or a 10,000 person firm, we have a license that gives multiple folks access. You have a group admin, reporting, and all that good stuff. Uh, again, blackspectacles.com firms to learn more about that. And then as always, we have a special discount for individual memberships, which we'll share at the end. In addition to all of that, um, at the end of today's episode, we'll choose someone from all the folks who submitted their answers to the mock case study, and they'll win a free one-month ARE prep Black Spectacles subscription, and we'll be tracking all your answers. Everybody who gets them all right will get a free Black Spectacles t-shirt. Man, that's a lot of stuff. Um, My guest today, I'm sitting next to Mike. If you don't know Mike, Mike Newman is a senior lecturer at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. He's also the founder of Shed Studio and he is the instructor for Black Spectacle's online ARE exam prep video curriculum. If you haven't already checked out that curriculum, you can go to blackspectacles.com to watch any of the free videos from the courses. Today we'll be taking questions using the GoToWebinar question box, as well as on Twitter using the ARE Live podcast hashtag. And with that, I'm going to hand it over to Mike.
1: Okay, Um, so before we dive into the questions, I just want to give a little bit of a, a background sense here. Uh, about the case studies. Uh, most of you probably understand the case studies, so I don't want to spend too much time, but uh, under 4.0 and 3.1 and 3.0 before, them, before that, uh, there was just straightforward, one-off, multiple-choice questions. Uh, and then there was also the vignettes, the drawings that you had to go through to draw a section or to do a mechanical plan on a reflected ceiling plan, that kind of thing. And in the effort uh, for NCARB to make the leap and make it more like being an actual architect, uh, they decided finally to get rid of the uh, vignettes. And so all that drawing stuff is gone under 5.0, which is great. Um, That's a good thing because the vignettes were always a little goofy. Um, And the case study is the big effort to sort of make the leap away from Just like one and done kind of questions and to make it feel more like what it's like to be an architect. And this is a smart thing and it's a good thing, um, but it also creates a little bit of a sort of different scenario than most of us are really used to on uh, on an exam situation. So the way this is going to work is there's going to be a bunch of uh, questions. Let's say you have uh, uh, 100 questions on an exam. And the first 70 of those questions are going to be just like the old-time ones. They're, they'll just be one question, you answer it, and one question, you answer it. Uh, and it's, they're all individual. But then you might have, by the time you get to 70, you, maybe you have two case studies at the end. Could be one, could be two. Uh, but let's say you have two case studies at the end. And at, when you get to that point, when you get to that case study, uh, there'll be a screen that has a series of tabs along the top with lots of different pieces of information. It might be three or four pieces of information, might be up to six or seven pieces of information. Uh, and those pieces of information could be drawings, it could be code bits, it could be uh, you know, a, a change order, you know, any number of different pieces of information that might be useful in answering the next, say, 15 questions could be anywhere from about 10 or 12 up to 20, 22. Um, but you know, I'm guessing that they're probably gonna average around 15 or so. Um, and so you're gonna get roughly 15 questions that pertain to a particular project and that particular project is shown through these different tabs. So all of those tabs are gonna relate to the same basic project. And then the series of 15 questions are all about that. So the idea, and then if you have two case studies, then you'd finish those and you'd do the same thing again, and you'd have another set of tabs with a whole new bunch of information, and then a bunch, uh, 15 more questions, and then that would all total up to, you know, 100. Uh, So that basic idea of there being a bunch of information, a bunch of different tabs that you can move through this information, and then answer these questions The big deal here is that you're going to have to get used to the idea that you're not reading all of the material. You're going to read some of it, and you're going to know that you need to be able to access the rest of it. Uh, So it's supposed to be more like being an architect. So let's say you got some of a code, a zoning code or building code. You're not going to, before you start answering the questions, read 50 pages of a zoning code or 50 pages of a building code you are likely to get a couple of questions that then you would have to go find that code tab through it find the correct piece of information and then report that back in one of the answers uh, to one of the questions much like you would do as an architect you know as an architect you get a problem and you've got to figure out well you know there's part of the thing that's going to answer that problem is what does the client want uh, another part's part that's going to answer that problem is going to be what does the zoning code allow? Another part might be something else. And so you have to go through and find that information in the tabs uh, that you've been given. So this uh, is, you know, should be familiar to all of us because we're all doing this kind of work all the time. But it is a little awkward. It is a little funny. You have to get sort of good at kind of going through the material and knowing where to look and you know, thinking ahead and, and all of that. Now, as we do it, in this case, for those that got it, uh, set, the information set out to you, you've sort of already uh, had this issue, um, you know, we don't have the whole setup here. So it's tabbed a little differently. We're going to be scrolling through things. Uh, and given the fact that we're going to be scrolling through things, there'll be a few moments where I'm just going to kind of cut to the chase. But we'll talk about how you would have to figure out where where that moment is, but just in the interest of time, I'll kind of jump to certain, uh, certain elements. So, given that, uh, what we've got here is a v- sort of simple version of a case study. And so we've got a bunch of supporting information, the tabs that would you'd find on the exam, and then a group of, uh, in this case, 11 questions. So, let's uh, jump in. Okay. So here's our first question and we're going to look at the first question and then uh, I'm going to jump to the tab information and we'll go through that for a second and then we'll come back and actually start really trying to answer this question. So the first question is uh, how many drinking fountains are required in the building design? Assume that the building is 40,000 square feet gross area. Well, right away you realize, wait, I don't even know what we're talking about here. I need to go look at the information that they've sent so that we can figure out what to do next. So let's take a look at that. We'll run through uh, some some of the information. Now it's going to be a little awkward, so just bear with me as I jump back and forth on the screens. And uh, apologies uh, on my end of not being so great at uh, doing making that uh, smooth and easy. But uh, here's the table of contents. So this is effectively our our uh, tabs. If you imagine the tabs across the top of a of a computer screen. So we've got. Uh, the scenario we've got a program uh, in this case Uh, we have a phase one environmental report we've got a climate analysis we've got the zoning code we have a zoning map we have an aerial photo and then we have excerpts from the ibc the building code the international building code Uh, so probably the first thing to do is take a look and read the scenario so we're going to take a quick look at that uh, and i'm just going to read it out real quick uh, scenario, you are the architect for a new office building for a small to mid-size business. It is a new technology company called Jumpster. The, that uh, business has needs that will be obvious, things like uh, administration, financial departments, marketing, stuff like that, and some less obvious, prototyping like. The client has some specific ideas about how the workplace uh, should operate, uh, why, what it should feel like, and how people should be communicating with each other essentially what the experience should be like to work there. But there are certain realities that we must deal with as well, such as uh, land use, zoning issues, contaminants, uh, a whole series of those other things. And that's essentially what's represented in a number of these different uh, tabs. Uh, Then there are a few questions that cover issues there are a few questions that uh, cover issues covered by all of the supporting documents. Some issues may be answerable by just reviewing one document. Others may have to be interpolated between multiple pieces of information from multiple sources. So that's the general scenario. Uh, then we can take a look at the program. So the program means that it's the information that's come from uh, the client as part of the signing of the uh, 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 contract. Now, these are sort of simple versions of things. So this is actually a relatively simple uh, uh, program, but you'll see that it has that general information, and it's got some goals. uh, And then uh, as we go down, it's got, uh, I zoomed by it. Hang on a second here. Um, Yeah, let me try doing it this way. No, that's taking me on the tabs. Uh, it's got some information about the number of employees, uh, it's got some information about how much square footage is expected for each of the uh, different departments, uh, and then it's got some conclusions, uh, sort of general uh, problem statement for the, for the project. And then after we take a look at that program, we can see we have an environmental phase one, Uh, And so the phase one is just that preliminary. It's a few pages long. It's uh, probably not gonna do a big, long discussion about the difference between phase one and phase two right now. But the idea is that phase one is where you go in and say, uh, there's a site, we're not really sure if there's any issues. We get some professionals, environmental uh, engineers and and environmental scientists. Uh, They take a look through the information about the site. They look at the site. Uh, maybe through photos, maybe in person, but often not, Uh, and just uh, look at the history of the site and come up with whether there's likely to be any uh, problems here. So this is an environmental phase one. Uh, If things are problematic, then you would probably get an environmental phase two where all the actual testing happens. So we've got the environmental phase one uh, about the site. And this is essentially the executive summary of the phase one. An actual phase one would be about 100 pages long. But the executive summary is just a couple pages. So there's the phase one. Uh, Now we have a climate analysis and environmental proposals. Uh, And so this is just giving you a sense. You know, we've got some information here about the climate. It's a temperate climate. It's at 40 degrees latitude. It talks about... Uh, being a relatively cold uh, winter, um, reasonably warm, but not super hot average summer, Uh, a little bit of information about the site, and then a series of proposals uh, down at the end of that page that are regarding climate analysis and environmental um, aspects to the project. So you can see under the proposals daylight capture, maybe geothermal, uh, controlled cross ventilation opportunities, whole series of different uh, things along those lines. Then we have a portion of the zoning code, and this is multiple pages, Um, and so it's going to have FAR information, uh, setback information, parking information, a whole series of of different uh, aspects of that. Uh, So that's multiple pages and then there's going to be the uh, zoning map. Uh, And on the zoning map, you can see we have the site called out. It's a B3-3, and importantly, you notice a couple of other things. There's an element here called a pedestrian street. Um, Different municipalities will have different ways that they talk about these things, but they're specialized streets. Uh, that uh, where the municipality wants to emphasize uh, and make sure that they don't accidentally make really dead streets this wants to be a relatively lively streets street with lots of uh, uh, windows facing to the to the main street so that's a pedestrian street and you also note that uh, very close by there's a train station transit station and then there's a aerial photo just to give you a sense of it. There's the site, you can see the transit station. There's an open site just to the south uh, uh, southeast. Um, uh, so there's some opportunities here. Uh, you can tell there's residential nearby, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And then the final piece of information we have is um, the excerpt from the building code. Now we haven't put the whole thing in, but it's actually a lot of pages even with just this. Uh, so you can see we have the use and occupancy classification, we have the general building heights and areas, we have types of construction, we have, uh, chapter 10, the means of egress, and then chapter 29, plumbing systems. Uh, so there's a lot of information, uh, in that, uh, IBC uh, section. We have a general idea of what's going on, uh, we've looked at the site, so we have a sense of, kind of, what generally is happening. Uh, We understand by looking at the uh, zoning map uh, that it's a B3-3, that there's residential nearby, that it's on a pedestrian street, which is a special classification, and it's near a transit. Uh, We can look at the zoning code and start understanding uh, we have the floor area ratio, uh, the FAR here. Um, You can see we also, at the bottom of that sheet, we have the front setbacks Uh, and then the rear setbacks. We've got uh, some building height information. Uh, We have the parking uh, table that tells us how many parking spaces we're gonna need. So we've got a series of pieces of information there that are gonna be useful. Uh, The climate analysis and the program. Let's look back uh, at the program for a moment just before we jump back into the questions. Uh, So taking a quick look, We can see that we've got um, some general goals. We want a high performance building. Uh, We want uh, efficient groupings for the office and the departments. We want natural light for all down there, number 12. Um, Everyone is near the exterior, number 13. So there's a bunch of information in there and if we had a minute, we would probably read through that whole thing. I'm gonna kind of skip along for now. And then on page two of the program, it talks about how the site is 20,000 square feet. We have 170 feet of street frontage along the main pedestrian street that we were just looking at on that zoning map. Uh, And then we have all of those uh, uh, folks. We have the number of people listed out per um, department, and it comes out to uh, about 220. Now, that might change, uh, but it's going to be approximately that. But then we're adding in 20% for growth. So that's another, uh, um, I'm sorry, that should be 200, I believe. Uh, I think that was a typo there. Uh, So then that uh, comes out with the growth added in to 240 employees. And then the uh, number of square foot per department, we'll see if that becomes useful or not. Okay, so we're going to jump back to the actual questions. And we're going to take a look and see. Go remind ourselves what the first question is: How many drinking fountains are required in the building design? So we're assuming that the building is forty thousand square feet. Uh, we're assuming that from the program, if we looked through, there'd be uh, some information that says this is what we're aiming towards. So then we have possible answers: one drinking fountain, four drinking fountains. There are no requirements for drinking fountains in business occupancies. rounded up to three drinking fountains. Well, one thing I can definitely tell you is it's not C, um, because drinking fountains almost always are, in fact, required in business occupancies. Uh, It's a thing that's important to folks um, in, it's just one of those things that shows up all the time in pretty much every code. Uh, So we got to figure out how many drinking fountains are needed. So first thing we're going to do is we're going to take a look at uh, the IBC and we note that the plumbing chapter is way down at the end uh, and so I'm going to zoom as fast as I can to the end it's going to take a second so give me just a minute
0: we need some music is there for you.
1: a way I can get rid of that thing so I can get to that
0: uh, no
1: okay here it is it's okay
0: We need some scrolling music.
1: Yeah, we do need scrolling music, that would be nice. So you can see we're going through all of that egress stuff and all all the way along here. Um, Okay. We get uh, pretty close here to the main plumbing information. Okay, here we are in the plumbing section. Uh, we take a look down here. We've got a table, minimum number of required plumbing fixtures. Uh, you can see they have uh, for different classifications. So they have the classifications called out uh, over here. Uh, and then uh, water closets, uh, lavatories, showers, and drinking fountains. So that's the one that we're really looking for. So let's see if we can find. Let uh, me do it this way. We're in the A's, those are assemblies. We're still in the assemblies, there's business. So we've got business right here. Here's the drinking fountain line, and it says one per 100 people. So then an interesting question is, well, how many people do we have? And the answer we just looked at in the program is we have, even if we include the growth, 240 people. But is that the actual right number? And the problem here is, it's one thing for our client to want to have 240 people there, but that isn't necessarily what we would use for the calculation on this, because we actually need to have it be something that matches, like let's say this company goes out of business next week, and a different uh, a company moves into the building, and they have a different number of people. the The number of drinking fountains, the number of bathrooms, the number of uh, water closets, all that stuff has to work for whoever moves into the building. So the scale of the building and the occupancy, those two pieces of information are the thing that we would actually really need to think about. So we have to know in a business. So this is the occupancy is business in a business environment how many people does the code think are in this building? Not how many people does our client imagine putting into them, but how many people does the code think? And that's gonna be a per square foot uh, way of understanding it. And so that's actually gonna be in a totally different section. We're gonna be in the section that is about uh, egress uh, because that's where they're gonna define that, where they're gonna define the occupancy count. So now, I'm going to go zooming way back up, uh, all the way through that code. And when we're in that section, here we are, uh, table, in this case, 1004.1.2 is the maximum floor area allowances per occupant. Uh, So the first bunch of those are all regarding like uh, aircrafts and a bunch of other stuff. So we need to go to the next page. We're looking through the next page and we see business and it says 100 gross. So 100 square feet of uh, gross area per uh, per person. Well, we talked about how the building was 40,000 square feet Uh, We divide that by 100 means we have uh, 400, not the 240 that we were thinking, but 400 people uh, occupying this building according to the code. Now, there are actually a bunch of ways you can start to alter that number. There's some exceptions here and other things there, but for the most part, uh you're going to find that that's going to be a pretty straightforward thing so our actual number is going to be 400 people and it was one per 100 so therefore b is our correct answer
0: And there's a couple questions here folks are asking about the search tool Um, so there is a search tool um and actually if you use so we built um at black spectacles we built our practice exams with the exact same tools that um, NCARB has on the real exam, uh, and it looks the same and everything else. So it's like we tried to sort of replicate it as closely exactly. as we yeah. could. Um, and so if you use our practice exams, you'll get a sense of how it works um, and, and the sense of how to use the search tool. But there is a search tool yeah. that allows you to search. So there's pretty
1: good tabbing and a search tool and a bunch of other, it's just in this context, it's we have to kind of scroll through everything. So. Apologies about that. So, thanks, Carla and Philip, for, uh, for yeah. those questions. Okay, let's go to number two. Uh, which of the following structures spans are most likely? So, this is we have a uh, concrete joist pan construction with 18 foot spans, structural steel wide flange framing uh, plan with 35 foot spans, open web steel joist spanning 65 feet to masonry bearing walls, 2x12s uh, at 16 inches on center with 24 foot spans. Um, So this is kind of an odd uh, question. This is really just uh, trying to get, uh, you know, if you look through the program, you'll see the sort of dimensionally, and you look at the the plans, you'll see dimensionally uh, a bunch of opportunities to sort of answer this from a number of different angles. But I actually think the easiest way to answer this is there's nothing in any of the program information that would ask for anything unusual and pretty much for this kind of context, all of these are unusual except uh, B, that uh, steel wide flange with uh, roughly 35 foot spans is for an office building going to be the kind of typical situation. It means that our uh, windows won't be very far away from all the people, so we'll have windows in the courtyard side and the other side. Uh, so it just sort of answers all of the issues. The 18 foot spans are just too small for this kind of uh, use. The two by 12s just don't make any sense uh, for a four story uh, building that's uh, new construction uh, from a fire rating standpoint and the 65 foot uh, spans open web steel joists. We might do something like that if there was some very pronounced reason that was put into the program uh, that said we really wanna have uh, long spans. But uh, it's going to be much more expensive and difficult. It's going to bounce a lot. It's going to be difficult to, to make work uh, in this kind of context. Uh, so uh, really, the only sort of logical answer is uh, steel 35-foot uh, uh, spans. So that's a little bit of an odd one. You can find it in a couple different ways through the, the tab information or just answering it uh, from uh, the way that we just did just now. Number three, uh, what hourly fire reading will be required for non-bearing partitions in the interior portion of the building, excluding any demising walls? So not the corridor walls, not walls between any units or anything like that, but just general, regular interior uh, partitions. So uh, this one, we would, again, go back to the IBC. Uh, So we're going to go back into the IBC here. Uh, and we're going to look for our, uh, a rating table, um, so I'll tell you what I'm going to jump to here, uh, and we're going to find it under the uh, types of construction section. So we're going to zoom ahead, and we're going to find this appropriate table. Okay, Um, let me zoom in here, I'm gonna cheat a little bit. All right, so here we are uh, under types of construction, Uh, fire resistance rating requirements for building elements, Uh, and we have primary structural elements, bearing walls, exterior and interior. And then here we have one for non-bearing walls and partitions exterior, but that's not what we want. We want the interior, which is the next one. So this is the one we're looking for. And now we have to understand, well, which type of uh, construction? Is it type one? Is it type two? Is it type three? Uh, We would have to know in order to be able, because each of these numbers is going to be different Uh, And so we'd have to figure out what type of construction. But as it turns out, if we take a look through, it's all zero. So we can actually answer this one by just saying zero. There is no hourly uh, requirement. Okay, number four.
0: We are knocking people out of uh, the drawing here. We were down to 13 previously. And the pickings are getting slim. I think we're down to 11, 10. 10.
1: We're gonna, we'll we'll be okay. We'll catch, we'll get, somebody will win this thing. (laughs) Um, Number four, in a fire emergency panic, uh, how many rated stairwells are there required to be found in the floor plan to get people to safety? So this is a big enough building. You know, if we have, it's 40,000 square feet, 10,000 square feet per floor, Uh, you know, if you have a, reasonably sized building, and you've got a fully sprinklered, you can sometimes get away with a single stair exit, especially for one floor above grade, that kind of thing. This is a four-story building, 10,000 square feet per floor. Uh, You're gonna need two stairs. There's really no question. The only question is whether we need actually a third stair. Um, It's, you know, it's not so big that we're gonna need a fourth stair. So I can pretty much guarantee you, just from knowing what I, you know, generally about uh, how these things go, that it's probably answer B, and might possibly be answer C. So if I was in a hurry, if I was running out of time, I'm just answering B because two stairs, totally standard. There's only reason it would go more than that is if it was either a lot of people, so therefore like an assembly space or something like that, or really big. Uh, square footage footprint, uh, which then when we divided by the 100 square foot per person that we just found a few minutes ago, would be again a big number of people, or there's just really long distances. But none of those seem likely, it all seems pretty compact, so it's probably B. But let's just sort of convince ourselves. Uh, We already went through the exercise of understanding that we have about 400 people uh, in this building via the code occupancy. So uh, let's take a quick look back into our uh, important uh, little element here, the IBC. And if we had a little more time, I'd scroll through it, and you'd kind of see all the different headings. Um, But when we come down to 1006.3.1, See, minimum number of exits or access to exits per story. So this is talking about not just horizontal exits, but actually when you're going up and down in the stairwells. Uh, And it talks about the occupant load. We have uh, one to 500 has two. Uh, 501 up to 1,000 has three. Uh, And then 1,000 or more has four. Well, we're less than uh, 500. We're at 400, so we're doing just fine with that uh, two exit scenario. So the answer here, B. Two exits, two two stair exits are required.
0: Now, Mike, one thing that folks might be thinking is, um, and I know <laughs> every time I stare at a uh, at a code, the like the, the amount of, you know, sections and things that are in like a code can be really overwhelming. Yeah. But um, can you speak to the idea that, you know, once you've practiced this and once you've done this in real practice, like you kind of get used to like, oh, I know to go look for this. I kind of yeah. know. And so even though there's like, Four thousand sections or whatever it is, it, there's actually like a bunch of key ones that you kind of get an intuition about where to go.
1: In in fact, one of the things that happens, even though the code is you know a gazillion pages long, I'm I'm not sure that's technically correct, but it's a gazillion pages long. Um, you'll find that you keep going to the same pages. Yeah, right. Uh, so the occupancy count, the uh, description of construction, the uh, different uh, relationships of. Like if you're doing residential buildings, you go and you look at the occupancy about residential because there's a bunch of key pieces of information there. So out of all those, you know, a thousand pages, um, you know, you'll spend 90% of your time on 30 of them, something like that. And you actually start to get to know those pages pretty well. The trickiest part is, and I will admit I'm kind of glossing it over a little bit in this context. We have an example coming up, but... um, is that you know? Often you have a very straightforward answer, and you, your immediate inclination is to just, oh, that's the answer. But you do actually have to keep looking at the you know the next bunch of information, the exceptions to that rule. The you know often you'll find it'll say, uh, yeah, you need two stairs uh, in this situation. But it turns out if you're sprinklered and only two stories, uh, you can get away with one stair if the distances are less. Th- and suddenly you can get away with one whole less stair, which is a big cost saving. Now, there may be other reasons as architects, we want to always have two stairs, you know, but um, uh, you have to be a little careful. The information is actually relatively easy to find, but then you have to make sure there's not sort of hidden little extras that you want to get through. But yeah, once you've done this a few times, once you start moving through it a few times, uh, you'll find that it actually is much more you're much more knowledgeable about what's in it than it may seem, and then there's going to be a bunch of sections that you never look at. That yep. you know, maybe somebody else doing a very particular kind of project. You know, there's there's whole pages and pages and pages on airports. You know, mm-hmm. maybe two people who are listening <laughs> here are going to work. You know, on an airport at some point. Um, but you know, so most of this stuff is going to be shout stuffy. out to the airport architects. Yeah, yeah way to go, airport <laughs> architects. Um, most of the stuff is going to be stuff you can just sort of, you know, zoom right by. And like I say, you'll get used to it. Remember that when whenever you're doing a code search, you're always starting with occupancy, and then jumping to construction type, and then jumping to uh like height and area limitations how big a floor plate can it be how tall can it be that kind of thing and if you can't make it work then you've got to go back and revisit the construction type so you're always starting with those three things one one right after another and going back and forth to make these numbers work Uh, and then you're going to be going a little deeper into the plumbing and a little deeper into the uh, you know, size of the stairs if it's not a public stair and, th- you know, those, those kind of secondary and tertiary levels of information. Cool. You made me feel better, Mike. <laughs> I hate going through the code. Yeah. Yeah, you get, you get good at it, but... Okay, five. Which of the following are likely to be part of the project? Uh, choose three. So what do we have here? We have shallow floor plates to allow most spaces to have close access to operable windows. That sounds like something we read just a few minutes ago uh, in the climate analysis. Vinyl window systems, since they have the best R values. Sun shading devices to allow maximum maximum daylight. We also saw something in that uh, uh, about daylight. Let's take a quick look at that piece of information just so we can remind ourselves. So this was the climate analysis. Uh, Let's sort of run through this here. We have the proposals down at the bottom. and we've got uh, proposals are to capture as much natural daylight, uh, to block solar gain in summer, accept solar gain in the winter, geothermal with a question marks, which presumably means maybe geothermal, uh, operable windows or venting controlled locally, locally meaning like if there's a window next to my desk, I should be able to open it, I don't, shouldn't have to call a facilities department to come and open a window, uh, and that there are in fact operable windows. Uh, controlled cross ventilation opportunities. Uh, if you look elsewhere, there's a discussion about the idea of courtyard spaces so that you could start getting uh, convective currents and controlled uh, spaces. Uh, green roof opportunities, uh, maybe that uh, could be shared as employee break areas. Uh, Stormwater runoff uh, handled in a number of different ways green roofs, porous pavers, underground storage detention systems, and French drainslash bioswales. Night sky lighting, which just means any of your exterior lighting shouldn't be going up into space. It should be focused down to the ground. It doesn't really make sense for us to use globe lights outdoors uh, because you're just losing half the light up to space. Uh, It's wasteful. Uh, And then extra bike racks and shower rooms. So that's probably where most of uh, the answers are going to come for this. So let's jump back in. And we talked about how shallow floor plates uh, to allow most spaces uh, to have access to operable windows. Yep, we just talked about window and close by daylight and all of that, so that makes sense. Uh, Vinyl window systems, uh, since they have the best R values, that is true, but if it's a truly environmental project, most uh, folks will tell you, uh, even though the R values are better on a vinyl window, the making of vinyl is so toxic that it's if you're doing a true environmental uh, building, which has been asked for in the program and on the climate analysis, uh, that's probably not the material you're gonna wanna use. But let's sort of think about that one. Maybe if we uh, come back, it might still be uh, a good one to answer. How about C, sun shading devices to allow maximum daylight and solar gain in the winter, but control of the amount of uh, solar gain in the summer. That's almost directly out of that uh, at one. So that's definitely it. So we only need one more. Uh, No elevators to encourage active, healthy use of the stairs. Well, that sounds great and would be a great, uh, healthy thing to do. But really, you're going to have people working on the fourth floor uh, and no elevator. And what about accessibility and et cetera, et cetera? So that's just not believable. Uh, You might put the elevator back behind the stair so that people see the stair first and then go up and down the stairs Uh, and try to get them to be more healthy that way, but you wouldn't get rid of the elevator in this context. Uh, Heavy timber construction, there's really nothing that says uh, that heavy timber construction is part of what we're talking about here. Uh, And then F, uh, green roof for stormwater control and garden amended for office use. Again, it's almost directly out of that uh, climate uh, discussion. So those are your three. The only questionable one was really this B one, which it could have potentially been. but uh, the other three are better answers.
0: All right, we're down to six uh, six folks who've got them all right.
1: Excellent. Um, so <laughs> I actually had uh, uh, going to embarrass myself by uh, saying I'm, I made a little bit of a mistake. This is the question that I had actually planned to take out um, because it's a little complicated uh, in its actual answer, and I decided after I'd written it that eh, it's too too many complications. Um, so, uh, is, is there a way for us to not count this one? If, uh, yeah. uh, all right, um, yeah. but uh, so the question here is, where will a vapor barrier be located? And our choices are just below the siding material, on the cold side of the insulation, just inside the interior finished material, there is no vapor barrier in commercial buildings. Well, there actually is a com- com- vapor barrier in commercial buildings, uh, although not, always not a hundred percent of the time because it can be a little complicated but typically there is and then the question is where should it be um, and uh, the typical answer um, in a temperate zone which this is a temperate zone uh, would be c just inside the interior finish material um, and the reason we call it the interior finish material and not a more specific thing is there can be a lot of different, could be duroc in some locations, it could be drywall in other locations, it's a bunch of different, uh, bunch of different elements. Um, and the reason for that is in a temperate zone Uh, When it gets cold enough and you have moisture by people breathing, uh, people making coffee, uh, all of those kinds of things, you have moisture building up on the inside, you'll find that it will uh, create a force difference between the dryness outside and the general level of moisture in the air on the inside, and that moisture will force its way right through the wall. Uh, the reason I was going to take this one out, though, is that it, with commercial structures, it starts getting very complicated. Uh, and in temperate structure, temperate locations, um, most temperate places, this would be the case. But if you're in the kind of southernmost element, but still in temperate, eh, it might you might see it a little differently. So that was why I was uh, I sort of changed my mind on this question. So um, I'm going to answer C, but um, like I said, it's a little more complicated than that. <laughs> okay, good. Like that. Yeah, sorry about that one, and for all of you who sweat over that one, sorry about that I didn't, <laughs> didn't, mean, to, didn't mean to give you trouble. Number seven, which- you, you know what? You, actually, yeah. that's an
0: interesting thought. Um, in a way, that's almost like one of these um, test questions. You know, sometimes as you're taking the exam, you're like really thrown off by a question. You're like, what the hell does this mean? Yeah. Like, it could be this, it could be that. It, you know, it could also be that the question is actually doesn't count. And it's actually one of these questions that NCARB is testing to find out if it's a good question.
1: Yeah, because one of the ways that they get all of these questions is, you know, out of the 100 questions that you might get on an exam, uh, you know, maybe 95 of them are going to count, but maybe five of them are like, well, let's try these five and see what happens. And then you're the guinea pig on those five. And then, you know, six months later, those might be real questions for somebody else. Uh, And it could be more than that, it could be, like I remember when sustainability issues really first started kicking up uh, 15 years ago or so, uh, everyone we were talking to, people would go off and take the exam and they'd come back and they'd say, oh my god, you wouldn't believe how many sustainability issue questions we had, and and that was just because NCARB was trying desperately to catch back up, and so they would have a, a few that were real and counting, but then they were testing a whole bunch more. And so they had, you know, maybe 10, 15 test questions on anybody's exam. You know, at this point, it's not likely to be that you're going to get a few here and there, and some are just going to be poorly written, you know, Uh, and like that one is a good example of a poorly written, he says a little shamedly, Um, that's an example of a poorly written question and, you know, don't worry about it. Answer the question, move on, uh, because who knows? All right, moving on. Number seven, which of the following is, uh, which of the following are most likely to be included uh, on the site plan, the landscaping plan, and the civil drawings? So something that's gonna show up on all three of those. Uh, So we have encapsulation of the uh, oil tank, we have a parking lot for 90 cars, Uh, we have a line of deciduous trees for wind control, and D, stormwater runoff systems. Well, okay, which of these can we get rid of right away? Uh, The answer to that is without even blinking, we can get rid of C. Uh, Why is that? Because you wouldn't use deciduous trees for wind control. Uh, You would use coniferous trees for wind control. Deciduous trees are gonna lose their leaves in the winter, which is when you're most likely to need wind control. And so they're gonna be kind of useless for wind control. So C, not the answer. Uh, and I always throw something like that on there because that, that coniferous deciduous thing is just such an easy thing to ask a question about. It shows up in various odd places. Uh, so uh, just know that pine trees, coniferous trees, keep their needles, keep their leaves uh, all, all year and therefore are great for wind control. Deciduous trees, trees which uh, get their leaves uh, during the spring and keep them all through the summer uh, and then lose them in the fall, Uh, are no good for wind control but are great for shading because uh, when do you want the shade? Well, in the middle of summer and that's when they have the leaves. So useful for shading uh, are the deciduous trees, useful for wind control are the coniferous trees. So we're down to three of them. Encapsulation details of the oil tank, parking lot for 90 cars, stormwater runoff. Now, if we went to uh, our information to our tabs and uh, went through the environmental phase one we'd find that there is uh in fact information about an oil tank so there's something there that's going to be about an oil tank in that but that doesn't necessarily mean that that's the information that's going to show up uh on the site plan the landscape plan and the civil drawings how about a parking lot for 90 cars well if we have a parking lot for 90 cars that would absolutely show up on all three of those plans. You definitely would have, the civil plans would be all about where the curbs are and how the flow of water is. Uh, the landscaping plan would include uh, things that give shade to the parking and uh, block view of the parking and the site plan. Obviously you'd need to have the site plan to show how the parking worked. Um, but 90 cars sure seems like a lot of cars. Uh, so something seems problematic to me there um, if you did a quick uh, example and you said, all right, if we have 300 square feet per car, uh, which is a low number, actually, usually it's a little higher than that, you multiply 300 by 90, you're going to get a really big number that's going to be significantly larger than the size of the site. Uh, and nothing anywhere talked about multiple parking decks or anything like that. So even though that is a plausible answer, the 90 just isn't, doesn't sound reasonable. So my guess is that the real answer here is gonna be the stormwater runoff. Um, that uh, once we, Uh, start looking at it. Stormwater runoff issues absolutely are going to show up on the site plan, landscaping plan, and civil drawings because all three have to be coordinated. Uh, There'll be elements that show up uh, that are part of the architectural end, uh, green roofs, things like that. There'll be elements that show up that are about the plantings uh, and how water is going to move through and the um, topography. Uh, that's going to be both on landscaping and the civil and then obviously if there's underground elements that would definitely be uh, in the civil setup and we talked about uh, in the previous documents we were looking at that there would likely be green roofs underground retention system uh, detention uh, uh, detention systems and uh, uh, bioswales and all of that so all three of those are definitely going to show stormwater runoff systems so my guess is answer D, but let's just take a quick check on the 90 cars. Just, that's my hunch, but let's take a quick check. So I'm gonna go to the zoning code. We're gonna take a look through, we've got uh, FAR, we've got some uh, floor area ratio stuff and some setbacks, Uh, maximum building height. Uh, Now we've got parking and off street parking requirements. So, the first two down at the bottom there are residential. Uh, then we get to uh, commercial and to business. Uh, so, here we are in business one, two, and three. Uh, this one is talking about business with pedestrian street focus. Remember, we have that whole pedestrian street thing. So this is our likely uh, candidate here, and it says no spaces are required for the first 10,000 square feet, and then one space for every 1,000 square feet after that. So uh, we have a 40,000 square foot assumed building. Uh, We subtract 10,000, leaves us 30,000 square feet. We divide that by 1,000. So we've got a parking lot of 30 spaces. Now, things might change a little bit. We might go a little bit larger in our building. We might go a little bit smaller in our building. But that means we're going to go from 30 to 31 or 30 to 28 or something like that. We're not going to jump to 90 unless it's said in the program, well, the client really wants to have a lot of parking. Uh, And it doesn't say that. So uh, we can assume when we go back that 90 cars is just not believable, and therefore, the best answer here is D. Okay,
0: down to four, folks.
1: Eight, which of the following will likely be included in the fenestration system? Uh, Choose three that apply. Okay, we have low E coating on surface one Uh, on the south side. We have B, reflective sills and horizontal mullions to reflect light deep into the office space. Uh, C, low E coating on surface 2 on the southeast side. D, low E coating on one of the double glazed window surfaces on the north side. Uh, E, window systems with a high U value. F, laminated glass at all skylight locations. Um, So this is a little specific, uh, sort of uh, hoping that you understand about low E and how double pane windows work. Um, So if you imagine a double pane window so, there's two sheets of glass, and then there's like a little uh, element that holds them apart from each other so that uh, there's a, a thing that stops a cold bridge from moving across. Uh, so, we have surface one, which is the outside, and then there's surface two, which is the inside of the outside pane, and then there's surface three, which is the et Etc. Et and then surface four, which is the inside, inside. So by looking at a, we're talking about would the low-e coating go onto surface one, which would be this outside. Uh, if you imagine this is the outside and this is the inside, this outside uh, element. Well, low-e coatings are uh, like plastic sheeting, and you wouldn't want to put them on the outside um, because they get damaged if you had hail or. Uh, a branch rubbing up against it or somebody scratching it or something, you'd actually see it and it would start to mess up and it would become a problem. Um, So it's not going to be on surface one on the south side. Uh, Lowy coating on surface two uh, of double glazed windows, well that means it's right there. That's on the inside face. That actually totally makes sense because you want the Lowy coating before or the solar gain has gotten into this space. So being on surface three, not so great. It's okay, it's better than surface one, but it's not as good as surface two. And again, being on surface four uh, is not as good as as either three or two, and two is definitely the best one out of all of those. So uh, this one is certainly a keeper. Uh, Reflective sills and horizontal mullions to reflect light deep into the office space. We already talked about how much they're interested in daylighting, so that sounds uh, like a good answer for the fenestration system. Uh, low E coating on the north side. Uh, people will often put low E coating on the north side just because they say, okay, we want low E coating on all the windows, but it's not actually doing anything for you on the north side, so that one's not needed. Um, and then we have two, uh, one answer left out of the final two, window systems with a high U value and laminated glass at all Uh, skylight locations. This one is just sort of uh, a a kind of a trick question about high U-value. You want a high R-value, and then a U-value is the inverse of that. And we usually, when we're talking about windows, use U-value, not R-value, although you can use either. Um, So in this case, you wouldn't want a window system with a high U-value, you'd want it with a low U-value. You'd want it with a high R-value. So uh, E is not correct. Uh, and F, laminated glass at all skylight locations. That's actually a code thing, you always have to do that. So yes, you would absolutely in the fenestration systems want laminated glass uh, in any skylight. And laminated glass is just, there's layers, sheets of glass and in between each one is a sheet of, essentially a plastic clear sheet that has sticky stuff on both sides and it kind of glues everything together. The idea is that if, let's say, somebody threw a baseball up onto the roof and it broke the skylight, Uh, If that was just a sheet of glass and the skylight broke, then all of those giant shards of glass are going to come tumbling down through the space, and it would be unbelievably dangerous. Uh, So in this case, you throw the baseball up, you break the glass, but then the plastic kind of holds it all together. So it's broken, and you're going to have to replace it, but it's not going to come raining down, slicing uh, people's arms off or anything like that, which would be very unpleasant for everybody. I think we can all agree. Agreed. All right. Number nine, standpipe access will be where? Um, so this one uh, is actually just understanding the point of a uh, standpipe and understanding kind of what sort of place it is. We already looked at the aerial photo. It's clearly a, uh, an urban setting with a big main street. Uh, so uh, the standpipe is the device uh, that is used in order to... Um, Like uh, imagine you're a firefighter, there's a uh, alarm has gone off, you arrive at the building uh, and you figure out that the fire is on the fourth floor. Are you going to tie your hose into a fire hydrant and then run in and run up the stairs to the fourth floor with a full hose? It's like, probably not. That's not, it's just dangerous. As water is going to get all over the place. It's going to be in the stair. It's going to be a a real problem. Uh, So instead, what you're going to do is you're going to tie a hose from a fire hydrant to the standpipe, which is going to be facing the sidewalk, number C, Uh, and that will then charge water from the hydrant into the standpipe. The pipe is then a pipe that will go from that, front-facing element where the firefighters can pull their truck up and find it immediately. can't be hidden around anywhere. It's got to be someplace they can see it. So in an emergency they can get to it fast. That's why it's going to be right there at the sidewalk. Uh, it's then going to go inside the building and probably go right up to where one of the stairwells is, one of the egress stairs, and then it's going to go vertically right through the building. Uh, and then the firefighters can cl- run up the building and then they can tie a second hose from let's say it's the fourth floor, they go up, they tie into the standpipe at the fourth floor, and then they can fight the fire, and that standpipe is now filled with water that has come from that fire hydrant that they just connected it to. So it's a way of extending the firefighters' hoses. Now, you can also use standpipes for sprinkler systems, you can use them for a couple of different things, but the idea is that they're a way for the firefighters to connect uh, to to not have to have hoses running through the whole building. It is the hose, it's like a hard, a hard hose. And the reason that it's facing the sidewalk is they have to be able to find it. So we, we figure that out by looking at that aerial photo and understanding the urbanness of what's going on. Okay, number 10, uh, given the environmental concerns on the site, uh, you the architect should recommend that the owner do which of the following? So before we'd answer this, we would probably go through and read that phase one uh, and really go through it. I will tell you that if we did that, we would find uh, that, uh, sure enough, uh, there is asbestos, uh, lead, and an underground oil tank uh, are all mentioned uh, in that phase one as uh, things to be worried about. Uh, So clearly that is a reasonable set of things to be thinking about. But let's look at what the question says. The question says, uh, given the environmental concerns on the site, you, the architect, should recommend that the owner do which of the following? Well, if we actually answered C, we would be saying, we recommend that you remove the asbestos lead and the underground oil tank. That's not really something that the architect is commissioned or knowledgeable enough typically to be able to truly say. There are other things we might be doing. We might encapsulate uh, lead paint or uh, asbestos. We might cover uh, an old oil tank in concrete or something and leave it right there. Probably oil tank we'd probably remove, but maybe we would need to remove some of the soil around it. Uh, Hard to know without having more specific information. So C is one of those ones that sure seems like a good answer, especially if you read the phase one, but it's not the right answer for an architect. An architect is not going to be telling the owner uh, to, yes, you should remove the asbestos. The environmental engineer is the one who's going to be doing that, and the way they're going to be doing that is through the phase one and phase two. So let's look at some of the other answers and see what we get. A, remove the first three feet of contaminated soil and follow the phase one recommendations. Again, there's really nothing that says that three feet of soil needs to be removed yet. We just don't have that information. doesn't say that anywhere in the phase one, so there's no reason why we would be going out of our way to make that up to talk to the owner. So it's not gonna be A. So then the final one is uh, D, encapsulate the site with concrete pad and prepare for testing. Well again, maybe, maybe that's what we're gonna do, but we just don't know. Uh, It's not our place to make that decision. Uh, So our place is to help the owner and to recommend to the owner that they get the next phase of the report. And the reason that they would need to get a next phase is because the phase one says, you need to get a phase two. Often when you do a phase one, they'll go through the history of the site. They'll go through the photographs, the aerial photographs and they'll say, yeah, we don't really need to worry about it. It doesn't look like there's anything. I wouldn't worry about it unless some specific information comes. At which point you can go ahead and recommend Phase one doesn't say that we need a phase two. I recommend we move forward with our design. Uh, that's fine. But you would never be saying, I recommend that we uh, paint over the lead paint and uh, hire my uncle Jimmy to take the asbestos out. And by the way, we, let's just fill that con- that oil tank with concrete. Like That's way too specific information. You don't have enough information to be able to answer that. So the best answer, uh, In this case, because the phase one said so, get a phase two environmental report, which is where they do all the testing and really get into it. And then there'll be a lot of recommendations. And you would help the owner sort of parse the recommendations that came from the phase two. You might have a couple choices. And some might be more costly than another. And so you might be part of helping them to understand it. But you're not going to tell them what to do when it comes to environmental. All right, we're down to three. All right, last here. What is the FAR and approximate allowable building area for this site and occupancy? And is this enough to meet the needs of the client? Uh, So we have a couple of different answers here. Uh, A is FAR at 2.2, B is FAR at five, C is FAR at three, and D is FAR at 3.5. So the floor area ratio uh, at any of those numbers. And then there's different uh, uh, allowable building areas uh, uh, set there and some yeses and some no's. So probably the first thing we're going to want to do is take a quick look at the zoning code and try to understand what we think the FAR is likely to be. So let's do that real quick. All right. So what does it say? We have uh, floor area ratios for the B and C districts, dash one, one point two, dash 1.5 is 1.5-2, 2.2-3. Our zoning is B3-3, so we are a dash three. So there we are right there, three. But wait, this is one of those things we were just talking about, how you have to read the next little section to make sure that there's nothing that then says, well, wait a minute, what about in this kind of situation? Uh, And right here in the very next section, they have uh, FAR increases for transit served locations. And so it has uh, within 2,640 feet uh, if you're within a transit served location uh, and you are a uh, dash three. There's the dash three part right there. Uh, you can raise it up to a 3.5. So let's see, do we think, I mean, we already know the answer to this, but do we think uh, we are within uh, essentially a half a mile of the transit station? Well yeah, we're right across, the, we're you know, half a block away from the transit station. Uh, so we are definitely a transit served location Uh, And so we are able in that case to bump up from uh, a FAR of three to an FAR of 3.5. So now let's go back and look at our answers. Um, If we have 20,000 square foot site and we have an FAR of three, let's say, then 20,000 times three would be 60,000 and our building is 40,000. So yes, that that one would meet but we also have this potential for upping it to 3.5. So FAR of 3.5, 3.5 times 20,000 square foot of the site area, that's the floor area ratio. We're allowed to build uh, the allowable building area is the FAR times the site area. Uh, And so 3.5 times 20,000 is gonna be 70,000. That's definitely more than the 40,000 that we have in our expectation and yes, it meets it. So the answer here is D.
0: All right, let's see how many, how many we we're left with here. <coughs> All right, good, cool. All right, some good stuff here. So we do have, I'm gonna, there's a couple, there's a lot of questions. Um, I can sort of simplify this down into really sort of two questions. We'll do questions first. If you guys are listening right now, do me a favor. Um, we're looking for some new ideas for our next episodes on ARE Live. So if you would do us a favor, if you have an idea for a next episode, would you throw it into one of the questions so we can sort of, you know, do what you guys want? In the meantime, uh, two questions. Um, This one's kind of specific, but two folks asked about shallow floor plates. One's uh, Erica said, what's a shallow floor plate? Leah asked, can you explain why shallow floor plates make for close access to
1: windows? So
0: there's general some general questions about yeah floor, shallow floor
1: plates. So okay, real quick, I'm going to do it on the wrong drawing here, just so we can get to it. Uh, imagine you're the architect for uh, what was known as the Sears Tower, right? I like that. Don't call it; it's a current name. Yeah, the uh, <laughs> the uh, building formerly known as Sears Tower, and it's in, you know it's a huge big floor plate, and that kind of made sense back in the day in the '60s and '70s when you had, uh, you know, 20,000 uh, secretaries sitting in the middle of these, these giant floor plates typing everything up. And so there's a, just huge numbers of people all uh, sitting very far from the windows. You know, that might be 60, 70, 80 feet, something like that uh, far away from the window. Uh, a shallow floor plate says, well, wait a minute, that's not a good, that's not healthy for people. And as it turns out, uh, these days, these floor plates are really difficult to figure out how to rent them uh, because it's just so big. Nobody really wants to be in that middle. Obviously, you have the elevators and the bathrooms and all that stuff in the cores. Um, but nobody really wants to be that far away from uh, a window. In Germany, there's a bunch of rules. I don't know the, the rules specifically enough, so I, I don't take me... Uh, don't take the numbers I say specifically, but uh, essentially they have uh, rules that any building that's an office building, um, you anybody who's working there can't be farther than about 30 feet from a window. Uh, now, I could be wrong. I think it's 10 meters, which is about 30 feet. Uh, but, you know, it might be a different number. But that whole thing came about that people... Wanted operable windows, they wanted to be near sunlight. So that is a shallow footprint. That is saying that everybody is near the window. You can't be in a plan somewhere and not be reasonably close to a window. Uh, so that's what that's talking about. These giant, big square. This is one of the reasons that, uh, kind of, if you're renovating a huge old loft building, it's really tricky because they weren't trying to get windows near every square foot. But if you're using it as an office or as a residential, like what do you do with those internal, because they're not shallow, they're very deep uh, floor footprints.
0: Okay, and then the other question, a lot of folks are asking in a lot of different ways is really they're looking for a strategy for how to think about taking these case studies. And by that Mm -hmm. I mean, how much time should you allot for it? Do these count more than the regular questions? All that sort of stuff.
1: So first of all, every question counts the same as any other question. So uh, it's just that you happen to get a bunch of questions that are about one topic. Um, But each question counts the same. So if you have uh, 15 questions, it just counts the same as 15 regular questions. Um, So the the trick here is you're going to want to, when you first get into the case study. Oh, and by the way, you can can choose to jump ahead and do the case studies first uh, if you want. Uh, and then go back and do all the single, single questions. And I think the, the decision to do that is really about you and how you take exams. Um, the, my, my worry about people doing the case studies first is that you can kind of get lost in a lot of the information if you allow yourself to. So like if you're somebody who you think, oh, I'm gonna just get sucked up into it, I'm gonna start reading the whole building code yeah. Well, then if you did that first, suddenly you're 3 quarters of the way through the entire exam and you haven't even answered any questions yet. That's a disaster. Yeah. But if you sort of feel comfortable with the ability to kind of move through the tabs and do the searching and kind of like how you're going to do it, well, then that might be a way to kind of make yourself feel better. And then you get, them, get all the case studies done, because those are the trickier part. And then just go back up and finish off all the one by one questions. And so it really depends on whether you, that's a worry for you, about whether you get lost in that information. Because I think for some people, it's gonna make more sense to say, all right, I got 20 minutes left, I gotta answer these things, I gotta move through this information really quickly, and that'll kind of keep you on your toes. Um, so the, the first thing is, there'll be information, we had it as a separate the scenario, we had it as a separate thing, but that would actually be part of the, that main screen as you first came on to the case study. You're going to want to read that very closely. It won't be very long, but you're going to want to read that very closely. There's going to be information in there. And then there's going to be probably one or two other pieces of information that you're also going to want to read. there will be shorter pieces of information. They might be visual, like a, you know, a, a wall section or something like that, uh, where you're going to want to go through it reasonably closely so that you kind of know what you're dealing with. Um, and then there's going to be the other ones the sort of middle ground, where you're not going to go through it all that closely, but you're going to want to see what's there. So you're going to scan through it. You're going to take a look, uh, like the zoning code might be a good example. You're not going to read the zoning code, but it would be interesting to know what pieces of the zoning code they gave you so you can know whether that's a place you can look for information. So you're going to scan through that. Well, when you get to the IBC, like if they give you a code, you're not going to read the code. You just want to sort of see what sections they give you. So there's going to be a couple that you're probably going to read. Those are going to be the ones that are maybe a page or possibly two pages long. Uh, there's going to be a few that you're going to want to just sort of check the headings so you kind of know basically what information is there. Uh, and then there's some other ones that you're just going to know, all right, I'm going to have to I'll get to it when I, uh, when, when I find a question that I know pertains to it and I'll just find the specific information. So you, the first thing you're going to do is kind of place yourself on that information to try to understand, first of all, understand the scenario so I know what I'm looking for and I know what I'm looking at. Uh, understand the, the key pieces that I want to read all the way through so that, uh, in this case, probably the program would have been a good one to read all the way through. Uh, it would have told us a lot about scale and size and kind of what they were interested in. Uh, and it would have made it easier to look at all of the other elements. Um, but again, you're not going to read the code. You're not going to start from the beginning and read through. You just want to have an idea of what's there. So that first thing you're doing is you're sort of dividing those tabs into those different categories. Which ones are the ones I'm going to read or, or really look at, like a, a photo, uh, and which ones are the ones I'm just going to understand the, the big headings, and which ones are, I'm just only going to look at if a question seems to take me there.
0: Yeah, and guys, you know, I think what I'd probably recommend um, is remember, again, going back to what Mike just said, Um, the case study questions are not weighted more than the regular questions. Um, But they probably take longer to do because there's a lot more going back and forth and so forth. So if I knew that the exam had 100 questions and I knew it was four hours, like I would kind of go in and I would probably try to knock out all the not case study questions first and I'd give myself kind of a metric. I'd say like, all right, I want to be at one hour, I want to be through 30 questions Uh, the multiple choice and then at the second hour I want to be through 70 questions to give yourself some metrics so you can sort of make sure you're pacing yourself and then I'd probably give myself a little bit more time so if for example you were giving yourself two minutes for every multiple choice question maybe give yourself three or four minutes for each of the case study questions Um, so you have some sort of a gauge they're probably gonna take longer and again since they're not weighted anymore um, you know you probably want to get through all of the um, the faster ones first would yeah, be kind of a I, nice I would
1: certainly do it that way. And the other thing to remember is like, it, they're not going to take longer because the question is going to take longer. They're only going to take longer because you have reference material yep. and you have to get through the reference material. Yep. Um, and on any question, whether it's a single one or part of the case study, don't get overly caught up if you've got one that's a problem. Uh, you know y- as you go through you'll find there'll be some that just like wow i i have to go back through and really think this through or i've got to do a really long calculation or something like if it's looking like it's going to take 3 or 4 minutes to answer one particular question just make a guess and move on yep, it's I not move on, yep. it's not worth uh, spending that time and then if you got you know an hour at the end or t- 40 minutes at the end then go back and maybe spend a little time doing some of that extra level of calculation or really thinking through how the wording works or something like that. Uh, But you know, nobody is expecting anybody to spend longer than uh, two minutes is probably a pretty good, uh, it's probably even shorter than that, it's probably more like a minute and a half, like 90 seconds or something uh, on any one uh, of the regular multiple choice questions. And so if it's taking you a really long time. It probably means something's not quite right. Move on. You're better to relax and keep rolling than, yeah. than fret about it.
0: Awesome. All right, before we finish up here, public service announcement. ARE 4.0 is almost over. <laughs> it expires on June 30th. Um, if you didn't know that, um, it's a good thing to know. Um, I would <laughs> I'd ask you probably on, on behalf of NCARb, and just for the sake of humanity, Tell someone (laughs) who you think might be uh, taking ARE 4.0 or or who have taken it in the past. Um, All those people who have one exam left, you better (laughs) get on it
1: because they're going to start running out of uh, places to- You literally
0: can't take it after June 30th. So uh, that's my public service announcement. I want to thank you, Mike, and thanks to everybody who submitted their questions today. Our next ARE live broadcast is going to be your very famous top 10 tips to pass ARE 5.0. That's pretty fun though. Um, Uh, the link is in the chat box. Go to blackspectacles.com slash podcast. You can register right now. There's a link sitting right there. And again, if you can't attend, it's fine. We'll send you a, um, a video after the session anyways. Um, and
1: we'll be doing a similar thing at uh, AIA convention. So anybody who's going to the convention, come check us out.
0: That's right. Um, we'll be on the expo floor. Um, so you can meet, you can get your picture with Mike Newman. <laughs> yeah, um, no, don't, don't break your camera. <laughs> um, let's see. What else do we want to talk about here? Uh, again, firm memberships. If you want your boss to pay for your membership, go to blackspectacles.com firms. Send us a little information and we can get in touch. Doesn't matter the size of your firm. Um, also, as I said at the top, uh, we're excited to be the NCARB's first ever approved test prep provider. Um, I know it's a little pitchy, but um, honestly, the practice exams we built, um, we built them so that you could basically have the, as close of an experience to the real exam as possible. So. I'd really highly recommend it. Um, The two exams they or two courses that they approved for us were PPD and PDD. The other ones are currently under review, so we'll let you know about those. Our individual discount, for those of you who are ready to start preparing for the ARE right now, you can use coupon code CASE5818PC to get a 15% discount for the entire duration of your ARE exam prep membership. Finally, tomorrow we'll send you an email follow-up about today's uh, ARE live broadcast. Please let us know what you think. We'd love to hear any suggestions for how to make this better or what topics you'd like us to cover. I promise we read every word that you write and use them to tune our next episodes. So thanks for tuning in.